Well, let's start with a statistic. Um, there are around three tons of concrete produced every year for each person on the planet. And there is no other commodity that is produced in such quantity apart from water. It's second only to our consumption of water, to the consumption of concrete. Now, this extraordinary statistic um, gives rise to all sorts of questions, like uh, where does it all go? Uh, where did it all come from? Um, and perhaps uh, where did your three tons of concrete go last year? Um, I'm not going to try and answer that. Uh, but what I am interested in, because I am a historian, is where, in a sense, we fit all this into our minds. Now, if we think back a little way, um, concrete wasn't there. It's a relatively recent arrival in our world. I mean, very briefly, uh, concrete was discovered by the Romans. <coughs> the uh, art of making it was lost. Uh, it was reinvented in the early 19th century. And then in the 1880s and 1890s, people discovered uh, how to uh, use metal reinforcement so as to make it into an effective building material. And this is um, a building from the... Um, the lights a bit. Um, from about 1900, this is a concrete building that um, is, looks pretty familiar. And it shows you all the uh, main ingredients of concrete. Um, that is to say, sand here, sand and gravel. Um, there are some bits of steel lying on the ground here. Uh, there's no cement visible, but then the other ingredient of concrete is human labor. So it's something that's made out of these various components, sand and aggregates, cement and steel and human labor. Now, as I say, this is a real, relatively recent arrival in our world. And what I'm interested in is in how we accommodate this into our minds. Where do we fit this material that is now so abundant, but which a century or a little more ago wasn't there at all? How do we find room for it uh, in our heads? Now, most of the discussion about concrete that has taken place has been around its technical properties, and these are, without question, interesting. But my point of view is that, as well as having a physics, concrete also has a metaphysics. That is to say, there is this question of how we make sense of this new ingredient in our world. And so that's the question that I'm interested in. And I'm going to suggest to you a few thoughts about how one might approach this problem. How do we make sense of a material which is now so present, but which was not there um, not so long ago. 
my perhaps kind of starting point for thinking about this is a quotation from Thomas More's Utopia, which was written in 1516. And he describes the houses of the utopians. And he, uh, as you can see, describes how the walls are made. And then he goes on, the roofs are flat and are covered with a kind of cement which is cheap but so well mixed that it is impervious to fire and superior to lead in defying the damage caused by storms. Now, this is interesting because he had conceived in his mind a material which did not yet exist. This is almost 400 years before concrete becomes readily available as a building material. Somebody has imagined such a substance, and it's this imagining which is, to me, um, is, is intriguing and interesting, and which I want to try and, and, and unpack. But let me say a couple of other things which are important to um, what I, I've got to say. And the first of these is that one of the features of concrete is that it's everywhere. It's a universal material. It doesn't, so to speak, have a home. It can't be located as belonging here or in the United States or in uh, China or in Latin America. Um, or down the road, it's everywhere. It, it, uh, it's not locatable in the sense as having um, uh, an origin, a place of origin. It's something that's everywhere. And this is immediately something that makes it problematic to think about. How do you think about something that isn't immediately locatable? The second thing that is to me is interesting and is, is part of what I've been trying to think about is the fact that concrete has a bad name. A lot of people don't like it very much. Um, it's, it, it has those, an element of it that is repulsive um, and which people would rather not have near them. And this, again, is, is, is intriguing because most of what's been written about concrete has generally been trying to persuade people that what they find ugly is actually beautiful. It's been conceived in terms of, of, of uh, an apology, if you like, for concrete. Um, now, I'm not interested in doing that. I don't want to do something which is um, an apology for concrete. My interest in it is in the fact that precisely that it is so repellent to so many people, um, and yet at the same time, it, it is so much... Uh, um, it's so necessary to our way of life, to our world, and it's so passionately liked, indeed, by many architects and engineers who uh, will get very excited about it. So to me, the, the, the conundrum about it is that we have something which is both liked and abhorred at the same time, and that, to me, is, is a question which is interesting and which um, I hope I can throw some light on. Now, in thinking about this, what I've done is to develop, to think about it in terms of a, the, of a schema which takes a series of uh, oppositions. Um, and these are some of the sorts of things which I've been interested in investigating. And in each case, what I would point out and emphasize is that 
Concrete is both one thing and another thing at the same time. Uh, it often is one thing, but it is also its opposite. And so we can say that it's a modern material, it's an advanced material, but at the same time, it's unmodern and it's backward, um, and so on. And what I've done in the research that I've done is really to go through a series of these sorts of polarities and try and unpack what is going on there. I'm going to talk about a few of these now. We've only got half an hour or so, so I'm, I'm not going to give you the whole story, but I'll just talk about one or two of them to give you a sense of what, the way I've been thinking about it. Well, let's take this first one, the modern and the unmodern. We have something which is, uh, as I say, both, both advanced but also, in a sense, backward. And this is indeed contained within the various names that the medium carries. So in the English language, it's known as concrete, um, and concrete implies something which is, um, belongs to the world of the mind. Um, concrete, as opposed to abstract, we're talking about philosophical categories here. Uh, concretion, the bringing together of particles to make matter. Again, an essentially um, um, uh, kind of um, uh, mental um, way of thinking about it. Um, the alternative term for it, which, by which it's known in French and German, is béton. Uh, béton comes from a completely different source. Its uh, root is an old French word, béton, which means uh, a mass of rubbish in the ground. Um, and the word bitumen comes from the same root. So it clearly has a much more um, earthbound kind of uh, origin if you take the French term. Now this again, these, this contrast kind of underlies a bit of what I want to talk about. Um, let's take this as an illustration. This is a, a, a permanently incomplete house uh, in Crete and you can see here something of a building which is both modern and also unmodern. The lower part of it, which is complete, um, could be a building of more or less any time. But then above it, there is a clearly modern structure. And one might say, is this um, building uh, dreaming of a modern past, so to speak? Uh, what is going on here? But it illustrates rather well this capacity of concrete to be both things at once, something that is both modern and unmodern. Normally speaking, we think of concrete in terms of its modern uh, characteristics. This is a nice little quote by, from an essay by George Orwell, and you can see that um, he situates uh, concrete, along with all that modern stuff, uh, against, on the other side, um, war, nationalism, religion, monarchy, peasants, Greek, Greek professors, poets, and horses. It's not that stuff. But what I want, I'm interested in is actually it's got a bit of that stuff in it as well. Okay. Now, most of the time, a great deal of effort is put by everybody concerned with concrete into convincing us that it is indeed a progressive material. And so buildings like this, this is a work by Oscar Niemeyer, the Brazilian architect, are clearly drawing attention 
to the fact that we are using a medium here which is progressive. It belongs to the future. This is a modern material. It's doing things which could not easily be done uh, with any other medium. Um, and there's the tendency of the industry has been want to want to emphasize the essential modernity uh, of the stuff that we're, we're using. But at the same time, there's an awful lot of concrete used all over the world that doesn't have this characteristic. So we look here, this is a um, building in a, uh, under construction in a shanty town in Peru, and here concrete is not being used in any way that could be described as being particularly modern. It's just an ordinary building material. It's, in a sense, it's unmodern. Um, and this, in a way, is the uh, more general um, application of concrete uh, throughout much of the world. So when we see it, tend to think of it as being progressive, we must realize that that's been loaded onto it, that this is a particular uh, attribute, which um, a number of architects have um, colluded, if you like, with the concrete industry uh, in order to convince us of. But actually, most of the time, in many parts of the world, it's used in a way which isn't really particularly modern. You know, one man with a cement mixer can produce um, things like this without any great difficulty, and there's nothing really particularly modern about them. It's just a generic way of building stuff. To me, one of the things that's interesting is the way in which sometimes architects have managed to recognize that concrete as a medium has both these characteristics, that it is both advanced but also not advanced. And a nice example of this is um, uh, this building, which is um, the Unité de Habitation at Marseille, Le Corbusier's great housing block at Marseille, seen here under construction, uh, in 1950. Um, originally, this building was going to be built in steel, but um, steel shortages um, uh, caused them to decide to build it in concrete. And it was built in concrete, but not very well built in concrete. And it's actually full of <coughs> defects in it. And Le Corbusier's response to this, when he saw it, was not dismay, but in fact, um, he said, oh, this is pretty good. It's actually, it's rather magnificent that it has all these defects in it. And um, kind of accommodated this and was prepared to accept this and to see that this, you know, while on the one hand this is clearly a piece of modern architecture, on the other hand it had something about it which was quite atavistic um, and primitive. And it's that, you know, combination which is, is intriguing. And to take another example of this, where this is even more explicit, this is a building in Brazil. This is the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Sao Paulo. And this is a building which, um, you see it, um, is quite puzzling because it seems to be an enormous concrete box which sits on some very spindly little legs. And... It's, it, it's a remarkable structure because you, you have all this up here and then very little supporting it. And if you look at it from the side, 
uh, under the colonnade here, you can see that it's seen at certain angles, these columns diminish down to almost kind of needle points, which are holding up this great big um, concrete box on top. Now, this is a building in which the architect, um, it's called Villanova Artigas, this was built in the 60s, um, was, I think, aware, was aware of and intentionally wanted to incorporate something of both the primitive um, and the technically advanced in this building. And this was a reflection, in a way, on Brazil's uh, economic and social state. Uh, and as he saw it, the upper part of this building, in a way, is representative of Brazil's um, lack of uh, advancedness. This is what Brazil could easily produce because of its abundance of unskilled labor. It's possible to produce bad concrete in endless quantities. Um, the um, quantity, abundance of labor in Brazil means that this is not difficult to do. So this, in a way, is one Brazilian product. But beneath it, supporting it, is another Brazilian product, which is technical know-how and ingenuity. Um, and the skill which um, engineered this particular construction with these extraordinarily slender columns it exemplifies, if you like, Brazil's other resource, which is, is technical expertise. So this is a combination of two things, of, on the one hand, uh, a, 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 an advanced technical know-how, but on the other hand, um, uh, manual backwardness of, of a, an economy which is undeveloped. So this, this to me is intriguing, this ability to combine the two in, uh, at once. Uh, let's move to another theme. Let's look at the natural and the unnatural. Now, um, most of the time, Concrete is uh, blamed or held responsible for uh, covering over or um, nature, for um, um, you know, everything that's wrong you know, is, is, is the, um, the, the, the um, overlaying of nature by concrete. Occasionally, nature gets its own back, as here, and... Um, uh, um, <laughs> Yeah, it takes its revenge on concrete. But most of the time, this is the, what is seen as being the, 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 the normal state, that um, nature is lost, as it were, to concrete. We concrete things over, which is taken as, as meaning that, that we lose nature. Now, this sense in which concrete is, is seen as anti-natural, or if you like, an unnatural material, goes together with the way in which it's made, it's produced, it's a synthetic medium, um, it seems not to belong to nature. Um, and a, a lot of the antagonism towards concrete is, is, is kind of collected together in these feelings that people have that it is in some way or another uh, an unnatural substance. It's not quite as clear-cut as the, though as this. I mean, but it's more complicated. But just let me say, first of all, that an awful lot of work in concrete has been put into naturalizing the medium. 
So this is a public laboratory uh, outside Notre Dame in Paris, which you see, can see has been made to resemble um, a wooden structure with a thatched roof on it. Um, this is a banal, in a way, stupid example, but it, it illustrates what I, you know, is a common feature of concrete, is um, it's, it's treated as if it, it should be in some way made like nature. And commonly what happens is it's either made to resemble stone, sometimes timber, sometimes other things. So as here, steel. This is the Lloyds building in London. It's a concrete building, but it's made to appear as if it's a steel building. So the use of concrete is full of these attempts to make it be something uh, which is not so unnatural, uh, these attempts to naturalize it. Okay, now the second kind of aspect of the unnaturalness of concrete or perceived unnaturalness of it is to do with the way in which it decays. And um, it decays in a way which is often not the same as other sorts of materials. And it's... Um, as you can see here, this is the Hayward Gallery in London. It cracks, it um, effloresces with salts come out of the surface of it, uh, the steel inside it corrodes and so on. And these, this way of decaying is perceived as being non-natural. Now this immediately asks, well, what is a natural form of decay if this is not natural? Um, and it's not easy to answer that, but I think what often happens is that people think about the way in which the human body and skin and so on decays as being the model for how things should decay. And something which doesn't quite conform to that is then perceived as non-natural. Anyway, um, this is a discussion one could take further. But I wanted to look at something else in this discussion about nature and the unnatural. And this, this is a still from a film called Point Blank, which some of you may know, which was made in the 1960s, uh, with Lee Marvin as the lead character here. And he's standing on the bed of the Los Angeles River, which um, was a, uh, an extraordinary um, project which was undertaken to, to channel the Los Angeles River, which had flooded parts of Lower Los Angeles um, previously in the century. Now, a lot of this film, Point Blank, takes place against backgrounds of concrete. Um, and one asks, well, what is the concrete doing there? Well, the answer to this, I think, is that the concrete um, in this film, as in many other films, provides an alternative to the desert. That in the desert, in the Western, the desert is the place where men are tested, um, where people are stretched to their limits. And in this film, in Point Blank, we have no desert, but we have a lot of concrete environments. And these concrete environments are, provide the similar um, uh, points of testing. Uh, this is the ultimatum of the finale of the film, um, where he's, he's um, gone to pick up the money which he um, believes he's been entitled to. Uh, he finally finds, finds it, 
Um, the parcel contains not $92,000, as he'd been led to expect, but a bundle of blank sheets of paper, and he kicks it into the river and it floats away. But it's, to me, what's interesting about this is creating a new kind of nature out of this apparently unnatural medium. Um, and uh, people have called this sometimes urban nature, uh, a second nature, but it's become a medium which has, has substitutes for our uh, traditional notions of nature in many cases. And this is a theme which one could um, pick up and, and develop and take further. Um, the third of um, these oppositions, which we might briefly look at, is between the historical and the unhistorical, that normally speaking concrete is thought of and treated by many architects and engineers as a medium that doesn't have a history. It belongs to the future, not to the past. Now this is puzzling because um, there's also another version that you can develop of this. And you could say that what concrete does, um, as in this building here, this is the um, church at Le Grincy, designed by Auguste Perret, built in the 1920s. What concrete does is to allow architecture to fulfill its destiny. This is, if you, can, you might say, a Gothic building more perfect than any Gothic building ever could be. But what concrete allowed architects to do was to make possible, or made possible for them, what had been impossible to medieval builders. So you've got this extraordinary um, church, um, which the entire external surface is a skin of um, stained glass. And this indeed is what you know, Gothic architects would have liked to do, but weren't able to do. So on the one hand, you can say, well, actually concrete is, is the material that allowed um, architecture to fulfill its destiny. But on the other hand, a lot of um, uh, builders and architects have used concrete as if it had no past. So this is the TWA terminal at, um, at, um, at uh, JFK Airport in New York. Um, extraordinary object, this. And clearly what the architect Saarinen was doing was trying to conceive of something such as um, had never been before. This is the interior of it here. So there's this kind of conundrum which, which surrounds particularly the way in which architects have thought about concrete. Is this something that has no past? Is, is it precisely valuable because it has no past? Or does it, all, on the other hand, have a past? And if so, what is its past? And this is particularly intriguing because architecture as, a, as a, a cultural activity is something which has always been obsessed with its past. Architecture is always looking back to what it has done before. Even when it says it's not doing that, it is doing that. Um, so when we find a particular kind of uh, a collection of works um, uh, made out of concrete apparently denying their past, this is um, something to which immediately raises questions, and that's why I'm thinking about this. But generally speaking, as I say, most work in concrete has tended to avoid the issue of its past. Now, 
not only do we have a relationship to history in general, but there is this question about the relationship to concrete's own history, because concrete's been around for more than 100 years. It's got a history of its own. Have architects been able to respond to that? Well, very occasionally, yes. So this is um, another Brazilian building. This is um, a sort of sports complex in, in Sao Paulo called Sesque Pompeia. And on the uh, right-hand side, you can see there's this big tower, which is actually a water tower. And if you look closely at the joints on this building, they're in this, this very um, loose, sort of ragged form. And this was a deliberate um, reference on the architect's part to another concrete monument, um, which is this, which is in Mexico City, um, satellite um, towers by Lewis Barragan, which again similarly has this sort of ragged joint. So this is a rather unusual case of somebody making an explicit reference in their work to um, a, a, a previous uh, concrete object. Most of the time, though, concrete things made out of concrete deny that they have any relationship to the past. Real exception to this was in post-war Italy, where, uh, for various reasons, quite a, there's a group of architects who were really kind of preoccupied with architecture's own relationship to its immediate past. This is um, the so-called Church of the Autostrada uh, outside Florence. It's a really extraordinary building. It was built in the 60s. And this seems to be a completely chaotic interior where everything, you know, it's crazy. You can't make any sense of this. You know, these um, struts and beams and so on that um, change shape, it seems to be quite illogical. And indeed, it's meant to seem illogical. It's, this is a um, two fingers at rational engineering, um, the sort of thing that um, the Italian engineer Nervi had been doing. This is a way of saying, so much for all your rationality. I don't care about it. Um, and it's, it's a response to that. This is another building. This is in Turin. This is the stock exchange in Turin, which is a curious building which combines all sorts of, of, of architectural themes. Um, but inside it, it has this curious web-like roof structure, which again was a deliberate reference to um, a church in Paris uh, which had been designed at the beginning of the century by Anatole de Bardot. This is a very kind of knowing architectural reference. So th these are some buildings within which people were trying to make actual reference to Concrete's own history. And then just to wind up, let's talk about a little bit about the universal and the local. Um, as I've said, Concrete's everywhere, um, and wherever you go in the world, you'll find broadly similar sorts of concrete things. Now, this immediately raises questions about what makes a place local. What is it that gives a locality to a place? Um, and again, you know, we make all sorts of assumptions about this which don't necessarily hold true. Is it something that is kind of embedded in the locality? Or is it to do with things that are brought to it and values that are placed upon it? Are they inherent, the things, the, the 
qualities that make a place local, or are they, uh, as it were, part of culture and that are brought there? And the way in which concrete is employed throughout the world, I think, gives us pause to uh, stop for a moment and think about, well, what is it, actually, that makes a locality a locality? Um, are we always to assume that it is to do with things that belong there, or is it to do with forces and circumstances uh, and conditions which are produced uh, from elsewhere and produced culturally? So at that point, I'm going to stop, and um, just um, to end, I will say that some of what I've said and more uh, will appear uh, in a book which is to be published shortly uh, under this title. And that's the end. Thank you. Thank you. Very interesting and a very unusual view on such an ubiquitous material. Um, we have time for a few questions from the audience. Um, if I could ask you, if you could wait until the, uh, uh, until the microphone comes, because your question needs to be recorded on the cast. Um, thank you for the very interesting lecture. Um, there isn't any um, geological background to concrete, and I would challenge that the medieval Gothic architect would have uh, found that building better than what they could have done because they wouldn't be able to represent um, their saints and their carvings and their Michelangelo um, enfigurements. So, uh, though it's, uh, I agree, to some extent, it, it leaves less to man and to nature. Do you agree? I, I'm intrigued by your comment that there's no theological background to concrete. Geological. Geological. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought it said theological. <laughs> okay. The geology of rocks. Okay. 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 Yeah. Okay, well, two thoughts about this. Um, one is that no uh, concrete is not a carvable material, but it is a castable material, and you can cast it to do many things. And indeed, people have used it as a sculptural medium. There's a lot of sculpture in the world uh, that is made out of concrete. It's not necessarily figurative, but it may be... Uh, have equal value to figurative sculpture. So it can be used, uh, it is, and is used as a sculptural medium. Um, the geological question is interesting because obviously, although cement is a universal medium, the aggregates out of which concrete are made come from localities. And people have tried at various times to give uh, a local inflection to concrete according to the particular aggregate that is used. Um, you can expose the aggregate by removing the cement film on the surface of concrete, and if you use an aggregate which is recognisable as coming from a particular locality, you can, you can localise it in that way, and it, it, in a sense it does have a geology. Um, it's not completely ageological as a substance. Any other 
Yes. Um, hello, Adrian. Thanks very much um, for a very interesting lecture. I'm, I'm here with a little group of students from Richmond College, our A-level students. Um, and it just happens that we um, have been given a question about high-tech architecture to have a look at this year. And it struck me that high-tech and low-tech could be a sort of a polarity that could be applied to con concrete in some way. Um, what, what struck me is something that perhaps you were sort of getting on in, into what can make concrete local. And um, you gave the example of the Lloyds building. <clears throat> and I think that there are other examples of the way that concrete is used in the Lloyds building, which is not in imitation of steel. I'm thinking particularly of the soffits around the ground floor level, where concrete is actually used as concrete, but maybe reflecting some of the other concerns of high-tech architecture, the, preci the precision of construction, the very sort of careful attention given to joints and jointing. And I wonder that since the high-tech style, if you can call it that, is often associated with Britain, that it has a sort of, in that sense, a sort of regional aspect, that, that um, a way of building can actually give concrete a locality rather than any sort of actual material quality of the concrete itself. Taking concrete as a, um, a completely plastic substance it's more to do with the way that designers have used concrete in a way that reflects a local tradition, which has been very quickly, I suppose, built up in the high-tech style in Britain. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That there, are, there are local traditions or ways of doing things which um, emerge. And so, for example, in Japan, there are ways of doing concrete which are not the same uh, as you would find in um, Europe or North America. And in that sense, one can d d identify certain things. I, I just pick up, though, on this question about the high tech, because one of the characteristics of concrete is, or is said to be, that it, its great quality is that it's monolithic, that you, you make a monolith with concrete. So you, you effectively produce a structure which is, is in which all the forces are distributed everywhere through it. Um, now, this is contrary, really, to high-tech, which is an architecture of components. It's all about making parts which can be assembled. So if you think of high-tech in relation to concrete, it should they're in conflict, because the whole point about a concrete building is that it doesn't have components. Um, so there's a question there which is, is intriguing. But anyway, there's more to be said. Maybe there are other questions. Um, well, one last question from the gentleman here. I know you said that you weren't going to talk about the um, repulsive so-called nature of concrete, but I wondered if you had any comments to make about why you find, well, most people find it uh, such a material which they don't like compared to, say, brick or steel or glass? Um, well, I, I think part of the reason for its um, repellence is precisely because it doesn't fit within categories, that it's, it escapes from being either natural or unnatural. It's slippery, if you like. Um, and I think that people find that are uncomfortable about something which uh, escapes uh, classification so easily. Um, and 
my, my answer to that question, which I mean, I, is one I have to think about a lot, is, is th precisely that, that it, it uh, eludes uh, the classification within which the normal categories that we use to think about the world. At this point, I think that we should end by thanking Professor Forty once more.